because um, I'm now I'm working like I work like four ten to twelve hour not eh, more than twelve oh, basically uh, four twelve plus hour days now with this new job. So she's home a lot by herself. Um, yeah, and she does not she does not do well with separation anxiety. My my dog, who is named sister, just sits down here outside of the studio there and just mopes until I come oh home. My goodness. <laughs> she doesn't eat, doesn't drink, doesn't do anything. The here's the worst. I'll give her her favorite treats, which are these things I called kebabs. Uh, it's basically a rawhide stick with chunks of jerky on it. Uh, I'll give that to her every morning after she eats her kibble and after we go for our walk as I'm leave for work and she'll eat on it and then look at me and just drop it as I leave and it'll sit there until she, until I come home. She'll come home. She'll greet me and be like, hi, hi, hi. And then she'll run and start finish eating her treat. Oh, wow. She's oh. like, now I can enjoy myself. Yeah. I'm like, you have to eat when I'm not here. <laughs> oh like, when God. I had a job when I was traveling, she wouldn't eat for two and a half days. It would take two and a half days of me being gone before she would start eating her, her, her kibble. Wow. Oh, wow. That's yeah. crazy. I wonder I wonder why like I know you adopted her right before the pandemic or during the pandemic, I mean. Yeah, during the pandemic. She is a she is my pandemic puppy. Oh. oh yeah, so she's used to you being around so much. Yeah, oh yeah, you're... that was the worst for her. The first 6 months was 24/7 together. You know, and then the first time I went away, I want to say it was like October or November, I went did an overnight uh gig up in New Hampshire. And I asked my roommate to to take care of her for you know I was gone for 25 hours he did not walk her in that 25 hours oh I was like what is wrong you went to how many times did you go to the bathroom in this 25 hours you didn't think once that maybe she needed to go oh wow and she did not mess in the house that's the word that's like the 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 only good thing of it is like she was like die I've never seen like she does not make any motion or any announcement that she needs to go to the bathroom. She doesn't stand by the door. She doesn't bark. She doesn't like only when she's sick, will she make notice that she knows she needs to go to the bathroom. Any other time she'll just wait until I go walk her to, to go to the bathroom unless she's sick and has diarrhea. Otherwise she is just like chill and calm and does not make any notice, but she was definitely like making notice, like, please let me out of this house. Oh wow! Wow! Well, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad your trip was very short, and you're able to let her out of the house. <laughs> wow! I wonder if like uh, your roommate not walking her made her feel like she couldn't rely on anyone but you. Mm, maybe when he does. I mean, he's walked her oh, okay. uh, since then. Um. Yeah, I guess he never took her on a walk before that. Um, I'm trying to think if he ever just like took her on a walk for me, like the. Um, Occasionally, I'll, I'll ask my roommates to take her for a walk if I have a longer than 12, 14 hour day. Um, just because I don't like her to be in the house. Like, she doesn't need to go yeah. every 12 hours. Like, she has a very good bladder. She's very calm about it. I don't like her to sit there for more than 12 hours. Yeah, I, yeah that's understandable. Um, but she's proven that she doesn't mess in the house. Like, I mean, this is three years later. She has mm-hmm. never peed in the house as near as I can tell. The only time she's ever messed in the house is because she was getting sick from a certain brand of dog food, and it took me a year to figure out it was the dog food oh, giving her yeah. monthly diarrhea, like <gasps> clockwork, same day, <laughs> same oh, wow. day every month. Like she was having, uh, you know, that, and then if she was left in the house for too long, she would she would mess the house. But you know, if you walk her regularly, she wasn't, but she was still still having, you know. 
not trying. I'm not trying to be gross, but when you have pe- when yeah. you have pets, you talk a lot about poop. Poop comes up in the conversation about pets and, do- and and children all the time for some reason. Yeah, not that pets and children are the same because they are definitely not. I know the different. I know how much of a parent I would be by owning a dog now. Like they're not. It's not the same taking care of the two, but how irrationally mad I get at silly little things that my dog does makes me understand how irrationally <laughs> mad I'll get when my kid does silly things. Like, you know, you know, I, I get mad when my dog eats a rat. That's what she does. She now. Oh, oh, no. And that's probably the exact way, same way I'll react if my kid ever eats a rat. I'm like, no, stop. What are you doing? Get that out of your mouth. You don't know where it's been. That is full of poison. We actually had a roommate years ago and they had a dog and a cat and the cat would catch mice and bring them to the dog and the dog would eat them. It was so good. <laughs> oh they God. had like a system. I don't know. The Sister doesn't system. even eat the rat. She just kills them and then stands over there smiling like that Polaroid photo from the movie Memento's <laughs> like, ah, look what I made. Look what I did. I just killed it. Look, look. Hey, look. I murdered a thing. Oh, look. She's just so happy and proud. And she doesn't care about the dead ones. There's, oh I mean, God. there's here in my section of Boston, there's so many rats everywhere. It's literally called this part of the neighborhood. It, this part of Boston is called Alston, this neighborhood, A-L-L-S-T-O-N. And it's nicknamed Rat City. It's oh. right next to Boston oh. University. And it's just college kids who apparently were never equipped or taught how to tie up a trash bag before throwing it away. Like, the Whoa. amount of people in this neighborhood that just throw their trash in open bags in the cans, and it just spills out everywhere. is ridiculous. Ew. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, on that Definitely note. dirty college kids. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Hypothetical Comedy Podcast. I am Funky Sam Medina. And I am Athena Rodriguez. And here we're, we're here with comedian Dead Air Dennis Maller. What is up, Hello. Dennis? How you doing? Hi. Hey, guys. It's good seeing you again. It's, it's yeah. lovely uh, seeing my pandemic friends. Uh, that's been what I've been doing most of the year is traveling, doing comedy and getting to link up with my pandemic friends and confirming that they all do in fact have legs. Uh, yes. Who, who were a couple <laughs> people that you met? Uh, I was in LA in February uh, and I got to meet uh, a couple of my friends from clubhouse mostly because okay, after okay. the zoom thing, I did a little bit of clubhousing. For I never got months. into doing the clubhouse. I found a niche of people that I really enjoyed, and honestly, I miss them. We would just get on Clubhouse. It's an audio-only app. We would turn it on. We would do our work and stuff, chime in and hang out and talk. Um, and I got to see uh, voiceover artist and actor Philip Wilburn. Um, I got to see my friend uh, Ewan Godfrey. Uh, who else did I get to see over there? I also got to see uh, Melissa Garver, who was from some of the Zoom shows I did. Um, and then... Uh, Maggie Hyde, who did a couple of Zoom shows with me and stuff. Uh, the only person that I... Oh, I get to, finally got the Flappers Comedy Club. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> After three years of doing shows for them and racking up a $3,000 gift card bill. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's funny. That's you and Chip Jones. Yes. The management there was like so happy to see me. They were just like comping my checks. And I'm like, no, I have $1,500 in gift cards. Let me pay my bills. <laughs> Let me pay for my pizza and warm cookies. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to buy this club with gift cards from this club. 
I mean, you know what? There was so it was they were paying me so much in gift cards, and they were really strapped for cash. They probably would have taken that if the pandemic hadn't ended. They probably would have taken that deal. I probably could have. <laughs> I could have just had Barbara Holiday just sign the place over to me. He's like, "Here, you deal with it." <laughs> That's cool though. L.A. and stuff. Going to L.A. I can't wait to go back to L.A. Uh, what kind of stuff did you do in L.A.? Uh, I did a couple of bar shows and I did a show at Flappers. The reason I actually planned the trip to L.A. is because three months before I was sitting here at home listening to a podcast that I listened to called Hollywood Babylon, oh, hosted yeah. by Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman. They oh, announced yeah. it like, hey, uh, we are going to be doing our first live show after the break. We took, They took a break because Kevin Smith was making movies and stuff. Um, they're like, first live show is coming back February, whatever it was, 25th. Let's just say that that's what it was. Tickets are on sale now. And I went, oh, they are higher. Looked it up. Looked up airfare. Got cheap airfare. Round trip from Boston to L.A. Round trip, $310. Nice. That is good. Yeah. Like, I got a stupid good deal on that. I got, I think my hotel was like 55 bucks, 60 bucks a night. And then as I'm landing, I get an email from budget like, hey, super cheap prices on electric vehicles. You can rent a Tesla Model 3 or electrical equivalent, right? In parentheses, (laughs) I look up the as I'm landing the plane, I'm looking up cheapest rental cars in L.A. And it's like, it's a Tesla Model 3. There's no other deals better than this. How is this possible? All right. I think because I'm going to get the electric model equivalent, right? I'm going to get a bird scooter, right, for $125 a day. No, they gave me a Tesla Model 3, guys. I don't know how to drive a Tesla. Wow. Oh, I land the flight. I'm rushing to get to a show that I'm booked on that actually paid me, right? I got this stupid credit card, and I'm trying to figure out where in this Tesla to insert it. I don't know how to turn on. I don't know how to get in the Tesla. I don't even know if I ever turned off the Tesla. That Tesla could still be tr- running. It's engine okay. right now. I have no idea. That car was a mystery to me. I'm sub- I, de- I don't even know if I actually drove it. I may have turned on autopilot and just thought I was driving like a six-year-old kid. <laughs> Drive, 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 beep, beep, beep. Here I go through the streets of LA. Wow. So wait, it's like it's it's like the scooter system where you just go to a Tesla and you just give it your credit card information and you drive it. No. So the dealership, there is no key. The dealership just has a card. Oh, I see. Okay. It's an RFID card, and you have to tap it on a certain place on the door to open the door, and then you have to put it on a certain place on the console to start the car. That's insane. Wow. And so you're out in LA, you're doing these gigs and you are in style. Oh yeah. And here's the thing. Like we, mm, we're almost there with electric cars, man. Here's the problem with electric cars is the availability of charging. That's the problem in LA. There's plenty of places now, right? Across the country, it's getting more and more. But my situation was I had a rental Tesla car. Tesla has a proprietary charging port. Oh, dang. There's three or four different proprietary types of charging ports. So if you go to a Tesla place, they only charge Teslas. It's the only thing that'll fit. Yeah. But there's other charging places around. And you need an adapter. So I had a rental. And nobody gave me the adapter because nobody at budget knew there needed to be an adapter, apparently. Oh, wow. So I'm driving around L.A. trying to find a place to charge this car. The amount of places that I found that are locked on a Sunday morning when I was getting breakfast was insane. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was like I'm getting down to like 3% and I'm just driving around going, where can I charge this? Oh, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But the charging is super cheap. 
full full charge, thirty two dollars. Wow! And how long does a full tank of bolts last you? Uh, I mean, a couple hundred miles. That's great. I mean, Those somebody who owns good. a Tesla will, will know these answers better than me. But I'll, I'm going to say at least two hundred miles. Like I drove, uh, I got. I want to say I landed on a Friday. I must have landed on a Wednesday, and then I didn't charge it till s- Sunday. Oh wow! Oh, good. that is really good. Yeah, and then I charged it again Tuesday night before I flew out of of LA before I took, dropped it back off. That's rad. That is yeah. really cool, and that's just a cool experience. You know, like that you you get to drive this electric car for a couple of days and just like have that experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was really hard to be like convincing people that I'm like I'm a real road comedian. I mean, not a real road comedian, but like I have that like. You know, like I'm a working class man driving a Tesla three. <laughs> Are you like I felt like such a poser, like this punk rock kid, right, who turned comedian is driving around LA in a Tesla, windows down, what's up? Hey, <laughs> peace, right, you guys? I'm totally DIY like all of you. And they're like, No, you're not, trust fund kid. And I'm like, I swear to God, I'm a poor kid from Baltimore. Do you know I where just know how to thrift and use coupons? <laughs> oh man so you're from baltimore i got that i gather yeah i originally originally born and raised in baltimore lived there 31 years and then i moved here to boston 10 years ago wow and i'm gonna answer the question for you because every time i move i talk about moving from baltimore to boston like well why did you move to boston it's because i ran out of bridges to burn in baltimore Oh, (laughs) that's the other thing like i've been doing a lot of like podcast episodes like it's been a running theme on my own podcast so what do you really do available wherever podcasts are posted uh potted is that i'm me you know doing episodes with my pandemic friends and that's the thing that like we are pandemic friends you know we met through the pandemic doing comedy Mm -hmm. through zoom comedy and stuff like that we went through something like we went through like a war or just some kind of tragedy. Like we're all bonded. We all know each other. Like we have like a connection that we all have share amongst us. Like meeting all like pandemic friends in person felt like I was meeting old war buddies or college friends or somebody I've known forever. But that was the thing that you guys brought up now, not knowing I was from Baltimore. We don't know each other's life stories. We're just <laughs> bonded through trauma of the internet <laughs> and yeah. COVID. And we're like, we know each other. And then we realize we don't really know each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't know our life stories. We don't know our origin stories. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of why we're doing this, just to kind of talk to people and find out, you know, where they're from, what makes them tick and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so yeah, my story is that, you know, started in Baltimore uh, in the punk rock scene when I was a kid, like 20 years old, I started managing punk bands because I was the least irresponsible one amongst the group. (laughs) (laughs) But that, I mean, you're managing punk bands. That does take some responsibility. Yeah. No. And it's the reason I got that responsibility is because somehow they trusted me because I was better at reading paper maps than the other guys in the band. (laughs) There you go. Cause this was the nineties and early two thousands. And we definitely still used paper maps and uh, we're lucky if someone had MapQuest and MapQuest back then. Oh boy. Like you would print out your, if you were lucky enough to have a printer, you would print out the directions and then read it. (laughs) If not, you scribble it on a piece of paper by hand. Like just looking at the computer and scrolling down and like writing the things and hoping that your handwriting is legible. 
I know. Then you're on the road going, what does this say? <laughs> yeah. Or that the, just the maps weren't great. So you'd be driving and it would tell you to take three right turns. And we're like, why did I not just take a left turn? Why did you make me do? <laughs> I literally remember MapQuest directions having me do two U-turns right after oh, each other. Wow. I'm like, why? Why did that happen? And God forbid, if you miss your turn, now you got to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It doesn't redirect you like they do now. <laughs> did you uh, did you play music in these bands? Uh, I no. Uh, I did play drums for a while when I was eighteen. I bought a drum set, started playing drums. I played in a band for a couple of months, and just it, it went nowhere. Um, I was never a great drummer. Uh, I was okay. I could keep a beat. That was it. But um, I had no training, no lessons. All my friends were musicians, so they were worlds ahead of me when it came to the ability to play music and none of them wanted to play with me because I was so remedial. They didn't want to dumb down jamming out with me, their, their skills to me <laughs> at my level. Like yeah. they all, like if I was playing drums at a 10 year old kid level, they were all literally playing for six, eight years ahead of me. They didn't want to have to like regress back to make, yeah. to, to match my level. Um, and then when I moved to Boston at 31, I sold the drum set because I knew I wasn't going to bring it here. <laughs> I didn't want to have um, my parents. I, mean, I didn't want my mother, not even my parents. My dad died, but my mother. I didn't want my mother to have to deal with that drum set sitting in her garage. You know. Yeah, you're, pretty, you're like, I'm never going to touch this again, probably. <laughs> yeah. And like, I wanted the reason uh, I was into music was because I worked in radio. Um, I started working in radio, which you guys know because of my radio setup in my own home. Yeah, I <laughs> like love that. Radio was designed originally with spare parts that I stole from the radio stations I worked at over the 15, 20 years <laughs> I worked in the industry. And now I've actually bought actual real things uh, to make it actually updated and stuff. But uh, I wanted to be like a music producer. So I figured, let me get into the radio industry because then I can get a job work. I can learn how to mix music and I can learn how to be, work with bands. I can learn to work in a radio uh, or not a radio, but a recording studio and I can become a producer, you know, and I booked shows and I managed bands. Um, and I thought that was going to be my life and didn't, you know, at 26, the bands all broke up. I started oh. managing a bar and I got mad because now every night, my nights, you know, I used to spend my mornings <clears throat> working in radio and then my nights in the clubs, meeting bands, seeing bands, hanging out with bars, but booking managers and stuff like that and, and work in the scene. And then it all just disappeared in the blink of an eye because the bands broke up. And, you know, in the 2000s, 2010s area of time, nobody wanted to see original music. They wanted cover bands. So all oh, that music wow. kind of, all those people in bands were kind of going to the wayside. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I didn't really even know that. Yeah. That's crazy. Hey, so in your early 20s, when you're doing this stuff, when you're in it with the bands, who are some of your like inspirations? What are some of your favorite bands that are out there? One, I, I love Elvis Costello. Like people don't really know who some people know who he is. Some people don't like there's like, but he's won more Grammys than anyone else. Probably like wow. Elvis Costello is just an amazing musician that I discovered late in life. Um, and I'm going to tell you this story now because I need to prep this story because I'm also going to be doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. another like a music based podcast where they you, they talk about stories you uh, stories around based around songs and music. Oh, yeah. But my introduction to Elvis Costello was I was 16 years old, working, bussing tables at an Italian pastry shop in Little Italy in Baltimore. 
And like my first day there, a guy that I worked with looks at me and goes, I mean, Guido looking motherfuckers. Like these guys are <laughs> olive oil in their hair, just like, hey, bada bing. Like <laughs> pre Sopranos era. Like this is not ironic the way that they, hey, you know, like every time they talk, it's like they're chewing gum every time they're talking. And you know what you are? Like anyway, but <laughs> that was just the literal culture before, even before the Sopranos. But he goes, and he's 16 like me, and he's like two feet taller than me. I'm a small kid. He's up here. I think he's 30. He's like, no, nah, I'm 16. I don't got a driver's license either. <laughs> anyway, and he goes, you know who you're looking You know who you look like? I went, no, who? He goes, Elvis Costello. I was like, I don't, I don't know who that is. And he turns around and goes, oh, guys, he doesn't know who Elvis Costello is. Oh, and they're like, what? You don't know Elvis Costello? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> Flash forward a couple years later. Austin Powers movie. I can't remember if it's the first or second one. I think it might be the second one, Gold Member. Watch from the movie and they go, Ladies and gentlemen, Burt Backrack and Elvis Costello. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, this is the guy that they said I look like. And they pan over and I just see this fat, gap toothed, ugly motherfucking English British dude. Right? I'm like, I do not look like that guy. I do not. What are they talking about? And he's singing with Burt Backrack and I'm still this little, you know, young teenage era punk kid and i'm like ooh, burt Bacharach, ooh, what is this easy listening crap <laughs> so fast forward another year or two i just find out about who elvis costello really was 1977 he was a punk rock producer in england like he produced wow. the, the the record for the specials which was the very first like legitimate second wave ska band he was hanging out with the clash and the ramones and, and like he is the the inventor of one of the original inventors of the punk rock scene in wow. London, right? He gets kicked off. Uh, he get, gets invited to do Saturday Night Live, stops the show because they told him he couldn't play a song. He wanted to play a song, Radio Radio, but instead they made him play whatever his hit was at the time. I forget. And this is a beautiful SNL video. Like, look it up one day. It's like Elvis Costello, SNL, 1977. It starts playing this song. This radio hit, and he just stops, turns to his bandmates, talks to him, turns around and goes, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to play that song. One, two, three, four, radio, radio. And then starts oh. jumping into his punk rock radio, radio song, just completely going, you're going to tell me what I can't play, then I'm going to play it. Like, amazing musician, very talented. He's done operas. He's done all kinds of genres of music, and he's amazing. And I saw what he was when he was you know, 22 year old kid. And I was like, Oh yeah, I get it. We had the same glasses. We had the same curly hair. Okay. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> in face. I look like 1970s, 70s Elvis Costello. <laughs> I don't look like 2003 Elvis. Costello. <laughs> and I don't mean to insult Elvis Costello. Cause I love him. I've seen him in concert so many times. He's amazingly talented. He's a 60 some 66 year old man plays guitar through his entire two hour set. No other guitar players. It's not like, You'll watch some bands and they're like the lead singers holding a guitar and strumming it wrong. But we all know that fader is turned down and no one's hearing that guitar. <laughs> Elvis Costello is the only guitar player in his act and he's playing guitar the whole time. They got organs and piano players, backup singers, bass players, but no other guitar players. He's playing. Occasionally someone might come out and do a, a, another guitar riff, but he's playing guitar through that whole two hour show like he's at at his age an amazingly talented musician but didn't know about him into my early 20s when i started <laughs> discovering him like i was always an alternative rock guy i loved the music that nobody else was listening to 
you know, just by habit, not like, not like, oh, I'm going to be, oh, I'm going to be different. Oh, I'm going to listen to this band. No, I just got attracted to that music that like, I grew up with a really great heritage alternative rock station in DC that we got in Baltimore called WHFS heritage station. That was like playing music that nobody else was playing. Like they were talking about Liz fair on the air. Couldn't play any of Liz fair's music, but the jocks were going there. It was like, Hey, Exile and Guyville is a record that you're never going to see or hear anywhere else. It's amazing music. It's dirty. It's raw. It's this amazing woman playing music. You should turn off the radio now and go buy Exile and Guyville. Like that's how (laughs) rocky these guys were that wanted that were my prototypes to get in a radio. And that's what I was listening to. I was like, listen, you know, there was popular alternative like The Cure, Joe Jackson, you know, but then there's also bands like you know little a little bastard by snake there's <laughs> punk rock girl by the uh dead milkman and or bitch and camara like these songs that you were like boom, boom, boom. king missiles detachable detachable penis like these songs well, i remember that, just, that i remember when that was popular yeah like i just, i loved listening to those things finding those things those little gems that they would play like hey we got too much time in this hour let's slip in one of these little things and that's the music that i always found in love and that's what they were doing like and then of course coming up in the 90s with the punk rock scene you got rancid and then the third wave ska movement the revival mm-hmm. ska mighty mighty Boston's, yeah uh, real big fish goldfinger i just saw goldfinger in concert the other night and oh my god 30 years of music and they blew my brains out wow, just how energetic awesome. and fun they are just mixing that great reggae and that second wave ska with the pu- distortion of punk rock music like that Ah, that that was even at 42 years old. I'm like, oh, my knees hurt, but it's going to be worth the pain to to do the good old fashioned punk rock pogo. (laughs) This song. (laughs) I love it. That is awesome. (laughs) So at what point uh, in your life did you discover uh, and fall in love with stand up comedy? Always from a young kid, because I'm I'm, I'm born in 81. So I was born right at the end of that big 70s. 70s 80s comedy boom when i was a kid cop stand-up comedy was everywhere mm-hmm. all over tv you know they were giving sitcoms away to all kinds of stand-up comedians yeah. all, every late night show had a comedian on they everybody had their like every channel had some kind of a stand-up comedy variety show or something like that you know so i grew up and then it did all of a sudden just disappeared no stand-up comedy for years throughout the 90s just couldn't find it anywhere and then comedy central came around you know, HBO started doing specials again and, and you could find a little bit of comedy. But since I was such a comedy nerd, like that's why I got in radio, by the way, because I literally said this in high school. Radio is the combination of my three favorite things. Music, stand-up comedy, and acting. It's all those three things in one place. It's audio, a medium that you can create anything you want in the world. It's the imagination of the mind's eye. Yeah. You know? And I get to do jokes and I get to play music. And that's why... I, Followed that path into radio because it brought my three loves together. Like I get to talk about music, I get to make jokes, and then I get to do whatever I want to do. I so. used to, uh, I used to go on this radio show often, like maybe ten years ago or whatever. And he would always say, uh, "Radio is a theater of the mind." Yeah, because you can you can paint the picture with audio much better than you can with videos. Like you just create the sound effects in the people's ears, and they create the images. You know, like good audio. Even to this day, good audio matters more than anything else. Like when you're doing a video, go look at all every single 
film tutorial YouTube channel will tell you that good audio is better than good video. If your video sucks, if the quality of the video sucks, people will, will let it go. But if the audio is not good, they're going to turn off. They're going to turn it right Yeah, off. because you can't watch it with bad audio. Yeah. There's you like so many times where I'll be on YouTube and I'll be like, oh, I really want to watch this. And you put it on and the audio is really bad. So you're like, oh, never mind. Yeah. You can forgive good, bad video, but you can't forgive bad audio yeah. for some reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. but And then, of course, I'm saying that and there's thousands of tutorials out there talking about how to tell stories in a visual medium without having audio. So <laughs> maybe I'm also talking out my own ass because you can tell a visual story without audio at all. Like I learned how to do that in college too. Like you have silent films and stuff like that. But so the, uh, right. The, but I mean, the, if that's your intent, like for example, if yeah. this isn't going up on YouTube, but if it was, and we're just in here talking back and forth, but they can't hear us. What's the point? They have no idea what's going on. But like, if you had maybe like cue cards, right. And you were like showing <laughs> cards on the screen, then people would be able to follow along a little bit better. A sighted podcast. Hell yeah. You know what? We here are uh, cognizant of those who are utterly disabled. So here's your visual podcast. Yay. It's called a flip book. That's <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. It's very true. So then at what point did you decide um, that you wanted to pursue it or to, to do comedy? So yeah, the reason I wanted to pursue comedy, I want, I, here's, dude, I, I hate myself because I never, I didn't start comedy until I was like 29, 30. I started at 29 as well. Yeah. And I, I hate my, cause I knew so much about comedy as a youngster, like growing up watching stand up comedy, watching last comic standing and her, all these things. I was very impressioned into what comedy was. Like I knew it was a business. I was never dreamy eyed and thought it was something more than like, this is a job. These guys aren't making stuff up on the fly. This is a rehearsed written practice and crafted routine. I knew that at a young age somehow. Right. I knew that you have to work and grind for 10, 12, 15 years before you can even conceivably think about even making it. And that was a daunting thing for me. And it held me off from doing it for so long. Um, And the reason I actually finally get like I did open mics here and there. I had friends who were comedians that I would help workshop their jokes with when I would go on the radio. Every time I opened a microphone in radio. I had an objective of doing two th- one of two things. It was either going to be whatever comes out of my mouth is informative. It's going to be a news segment. Um, it's going to be something inform- informative about the band. Like I'm going to tell you, like one of my favorite breaks I ever did was talking about the band uh, Rise Against. And I was like, you know, introducing the song Rise Against. Here's their latest single, this and that. By the way, the lead singer has what is called heterochromia. Heterochromia is when you have two different colored eyes. He has a brown eye and a blue eye. Heterochromia. Now, here's Swing Life Away, or whatever the, the break is. And I only wrote that that break just so I can tell people what heterochromia is. Like That was my objective. It either had to be funny or it had to be informative. So I was write, always writing jokes but never getting feedback. So Interesting. Th- when I go back and listen, there's a lot of hacky, cringe jokes. That okay. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm in a room by myself with a microphone. I don't know what's working or not. It's a one shot. I'm throwing it out there. I'm thinking I'm brilliant. And then I hear it. And I'm like, oh, now I'm here. Now I'm like, oh, yes, this was bad stuff. Bury this flash drive. <laughs> Thank God there's so much of my old radio breaks that are on medium 
uh, recorded onto medium that no one ever will have the ability to listen to again. <laughs> There's cassette tapes of bad audio. There's zip drives of terrible breaks, terrible open, uh, basically open mic hacky jokes in 30 second formats while I'm talking up a song. <laughs> Those things are like, good luck finding a zip drive to play a zip drive anymore. Right. Like, yeah. Might as exactly. well be a goddamn floppy drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But also, you needed those to get to where you are now. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And and that was also the struggle for me. Like, so when I was 28, 29, the reason I started finally just, I took the plunge into doing comedy, I say full time, and I, I don't mean it as a full time, as, as in like, this is my career now. This is me working towards a path. I'm putting all my energies into that when I say it's full time, was because I got fired from a radio job. I was working for a morning show um, in the Baltimore area, and they took me out. I didn't fire me. I still had my job, but they put me, pulled me off the morning show. I was producing a morning show on a Top 40 format, and it, they hired me uh, when the station flipped to alternative music, which was my, like, I bugged them. Like, you, you're playing my music that I grew up listening to. That I know this better than anywhere else in the entire world. Put me on the alternative station. It's your passion, worked, yeah. Yeah, I worked there for 18 months, and they flipped the format to Top 40. And they kept me on. I was the only person that they kept on. <laughs> they fired the whole rest of the staff. And they're like, oh, we need somebody to kind of run this stuff. So you're going to run all the recordings. Uh, until we fire staff and they hired staff. And I was producing the morning show two to three days a week. And we had another guy producing two to three days a week. We were switching off, like, sharing days. Um, and I loved it. And they removed me from the show. And I was heartbroken. Uh, I mean, honestly, it was, I, I left work that day and went to a bar and I drank and drank and drank and drank and I drunkenly drove home near blackout in the middle of the day, by the way, I, I got off work at 1030 in the morning. I started drinking as soon as they opened. I left there probably at four or five in the afternoon during rush hour traffic and just drove like the half three quarters of a mile home from there, which I should not have driven. Um, and then I go in my room. I cried myself to sleep and fell asleep at six o'clock at night, drunk, passed out crying. And that's when I made the decision that I needed to take my entertainment career into my own hands. I can't, I'm not feeling creatively involved in the environment I was at. And this was yeah. a long time coming. Like my first Twitter handle was my name and the station's name that I worked at, the alternative station. It was wow. Dennis1043, because it was Channel1043, W-C-H-H. Um, <laughs> and so my Twitter handle was because I'm an on-air personality. I want you guys to follow me on Twitter and then listen to my radio show. And halfway through working there at that alternative station, I changed it to the Dead Air Dennis, um, which was a unofficial nickname given to me earlier in my radio career. And that's when I decided to like run with that dead or Dennis name. I love alliteration. I love that the name is the nickname was given to me because I was a censor of a different morning show in Washington, DC. And we jokingly referred to the position as the dead air Dennis position, the dump button position or the dead air Dennis job. Um, and so I kind of just ran with that nickname because of the alliteration and like the irony of, if you haven't figured out, I never stopped talking. <laughs> <laughs> dead air means silence calling me silent dennis is like calling a tall guy uh, tall guy shorty like, 
it's 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 ironic nickname. Um, and I ran with that. And when I started doing stand up, when I when I lost, you know, when we flipped formats, and I got moved off, so I lost. I didn't get fired. I just can no longer produce the morning show I was working on. I didn't have any time to be on air anymore. They took away my on air time. I was working now one night a week, you know, oh, wow. just babysitting the place, and was not involved with the show anymore. And it was heartbreaking. I was like, it's time to take my career in my own hands, uh, and I'm gonna start doing stand up. I'm going to do the thing that I said I was only uh, that I, that I wanted to do my entire life and I wish I wish I started when I was 18 when I was thinking about that. I, w- I who knows what would have come of me if I started 13 yeah. years earlier. <laughs> earlier. We all think that. Yeah. When we start comedy we're like, "Damn it." When uh so I started at 29 as well. And then you know when I see like a 22-year-old doing comedy I'm like, "Man, if I would have started it when I was your age." <laughs> but also like I see a lot of the my the people that started around the time I did, they just had those couple extra years ahead of me. And I was like, man, if I just had 10 more years under my belt, where would I have been? Where would I be mm-hmm. now? But maybe I would not be the person I am because yeah, exactly. my comedy changed so much when I moved here to Boston. Mm-hmm. Baltimore was, uh, is, it was, and still is a dirty blue collar town. They don't want clean comedy. They want offensive. They want dirty. They want, you know, they want that white knuckle, fist comedy you know like yeah like they dc will put up with it like dc is very gracious when it comes to a lot of those things the washington dc area which like when you're going like when you live in baltimore to me baltimore and dc they're like one city you know they are different cities they have different personalities but they're so close there's no reason why you shouldn't be a person of both cities for me like i went to school Outside of D.C., in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., I worked at my first radio stations in D.C. I worked through my entire career until moving to Boston in D.C., and I also worked for the same company in Baltimore. So it's like I'm I'm as much D.C. as I am a Baltimorean, you know. So, but when I got to Boston, I came here with a raunchy, dirty, five minute set that I hated. Oh, wow. There was a joke in my set about having, uh, after you're like curling up with your lady after having sex, and then you get to be the little spoon because then you could fart on her leg. Like, (laughs) (laughs) the fact that you guys just laughed right now kind of makes me die inside right now. That's, (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, It's, yeah. Like, like, and it was the entire premise was ridiculous and absurd the whole thing about this thing but it was the dirty like my ending bit was like hey i figured out how i'm gonna have sex with my neighbor she loves to lick the batters when i make cake i'm gonna tell her that i'm making a cake text her to come up lick the batters and just stand there naked oh right everybody <laughs> high fives <laughs> like it was so dirty raunchy and kind of broy. i hated it i but think it was- uh instead of that you should uh Tell you're making a cake and insert it with your dick. Oh, <laughs> and tell her she can lick the spoon. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. There you go. I just, I just, uh, gave you, you a tag. Yeah, you just gave you a... The only problem with that is you can't mix batter with a teaspoon. So, oh, oh that's true. <laughs> you got me there. <laughs> but like, I hated it. But the set came from that, that five minute raunchy set got compiled together because of just riffing and working an audience and talking and finding out what's what works because that's my i'm a stage writer i write on stage i write in conversation i have to be out there talking i have to find those beats i need that fight or flight moment where i'm talking to an audience about a thing and my brain needs to come up with a punchline 
And those are usually always the better punchlines that I write is the ones that I write in the moment, you know, and I have to go back to the recordings or write them down and memorize them, you know, and then I do, I write things out and then I come back and I punch things up and some of the punch-ups work, some of they don't, but I can't get to those punch-ups if I don't go out on that stage and just look at an audience dead in the face, open my mouth and hope that something good and funny comes out. And sometimes that funny works then there and only then. And then sometimes it's a brilliant thing that's going to be there forever, you know? Like, yeah. And that's where that five minute set came from was going around the raunchy rooms of Baltimore, trying to get people to laugh. And I was talking about like, Oh yeah. Looking. Oh, what are you guys on a date? Do you got, who's the big spoon? Who's the little spoon? You like the little spoon dude? Yeah. Jetpacking, right? Woo. <laughs> and I brought that here to Boston and it did not fly. Like my intention to Boston was to write a new five minutes was to, to, be a whole new different comedian, a whole new start. And I did that raunchy set twice and it did not go well. And I was like, did right, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want it. I didn't want that. I didn't want to use that anyway when I'm here, but I yeah. did it anyway. And this is a good thing. I'm going to start fresh over. And did I, you know, going into Boston that you'd be a little bit too raunchy? No, oh, no, I didn't wow. know it. I, I, I was literally sitting at an open mic, listening to other people talk and went, Oh wow. I got to get a lot better. I just literally, <laughs> like in the first, like I, I was, I moved there on a Saturday. My first open mic was on a Monday, Wednesday. And then Wednesday was my second open mic. And by Wednesday, I'm like, oh yeah, they, they hate me so much. They, I hate this set. Oh. They're right to hate this set. I didn't like the comedy I was doing. It was just getting laughs, but now it's not getting laughs. So I have no reason to keep it around. And I'm just watching the other comedians like, oh my God, these guys are so good. There's so much talent here. There was more women at an open mic in Boston when I first moved here than who did comedy in Boston or who did comedy in Baltimore. Wow. Like when I left Baltimore, there was like three female comedians in, in Boston. There'd be like 10 on an open mic. Yeah. Oh, this was my. always a female, you know, familiar uh, comedy area. Like this area was always friendly to female comedians. Oh, that's cool. cool. I did not know that. I like that. That's great. Yeah. That is really cool. And we're what talking you... 10 years ago. Like, I'm not like, talking about now. I'm talking like 10 years ago that I was impressed with how many, not just the volume, but the amount of talent that that was here. Now, I mean, it's the same thing when it comes to male com comedians, too. Like, the percentage of good to bad are still the same, mm -hmm. you know? So if you have, you know, 20, 20 male comedians in a, in a scene, which God, I wish there was only 20 people here, but, <laughs> but let's just, for example, say there's 20 of them. What eight are great. So if you have four or if you have 10 women in a, in a scene, four of them are great. Mm -hmm. And there's six bad ones, but Hey, we got 10 women. A third of our comedy community is women. Yeah. Just yeah. making up numbers, but like there were so many, um, but yeah, it's I, I it did not fly when I needed to do, it, and I ate big plates of dick for ten months. Oh man, I just must have been chewy. <laughs> miserably <laughs> bomb the worst bombs you probably ever saw in your entire life oh. for ten months. And what made it the bombs worse is I had confidence. I oh had no! <laughs> like well, I mean, like I'm I'm not afraid of the mic. I've been right. a performer my entire life. I can go up on stage and I can talk and experience and do things and I can work a crowd and I can talk and I'm I'm not going to sit up there in my notebook and be like, uh, so I was at the store the other day and 
like I went out there. All right, everybody. So, hey, I went to the store the other day, and this broad's buying melons. And I'm like, hey, if you want to get melons, go to the doctor, right? Hey, oh, whatever. <laughs> oh Dumb bullshit I was trying to pedal out of there, you know? <laughs> but I had stage presence. I had the ability to do things. I just didn't have the material to back it up. And I didn't want to be dirty. I was still finding out who I was because I worked in radio for all those years and I had to be clean. And now I'm doing comedy and I'm trying to course correct by being the super dirtiest man in the room because I'm in a super dirty city. But never really liked doing the dirty stuff. You know, even still to this day. Like, I don't write. I mean, I don't write to write clean and I don't write to write dirty. I write what I write. A lot of it happens to be clean, which I'm happy with. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it happens to be dark. That's where I go. I don't go dirty. I go dark. I go, but the darkness that I want is because there's a reason for it. I'm not being dark for dark's sake. Like, I talk a lot, you guys know, I talk a lot about mental illness and mental mm-hmm. health in my, my stand-up because those are the things that I want to talk about. That don't fly in a lot of places. Oh, really? yeah. Because they don't want to, dude, you go out in the sticks. They don't want to hear about some guy talking about uh, how, how his sadness makes him eat cake. No. Yeah, they want to hear about how you're raging because you're a drunken alcoholic. Like that's, you know, that those little different things. But like, oh, wow. I'm doing a clean show. People don't want to hear me talking about suicide attempts, you know, or or those things at all. But I'm going to make them funny mm-hmm. if you're willing to accept that kind of funny. I think it also like kind of softens the energy around talking about those really important topics because you know, people don't feel like they can open up about it and kind of joke about it because yeah, it's a serious matter, but also there's always something that's ridiculous about it, like surrounding it. There's something just completely unbelievably ridiculous about it. And that's why I think people feel uh, comfortable when they know that there's a, a group that'll accept that. And if you can craft a joke about those topics and people it resonates with them that's like chef's kiss yeah and on top of all that i'm a narrative comedian Mm -hmm. so it's like i'm telling you a story it's got a beginning middle end and it works when you listen to the whole thing but if you don't want to listen to the whole thing Mm, oh yeah you (laughs) might get a little bit lost yeah i mean people i do that with my you know I'm, i'm a tour guide for a company and i like to tell these long stories about history and stuff that i don't like history but I found these long stories that I like about certain. You don't like history, but you like long stories. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate talking about Paul Revere. That's basically my. I'm in in Boston and I refuse to talk about Paul Revere. They hate me at the company. (laughs) Literally, I got reprimanded because I was referring to Paul Revere as the Elon Musk of the revolution. They're like, nope, stop that. Stop that right. We are putting a kibosh on that right now, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> you will not be referring to him as that any longer. <laughs> like, hear me out. Hear me out, boss. Hear me out. <laughs> Son of a wealthy jeweler. <laughs> inventor that was trusted upon. I'm just saying. The parallels are there. I didn't just make it up. But they also hate when I refer to, Marky, uh, to Mark Wahlberg as the... Um, Locally known racist, Mark Wahlberg. So, Ooh, dang. <laughs> I like how you're going to call him Marky Mark. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. 
eighties uh, baby there. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm so far I'm getting away with and nobody has noticed, but no one has reprimanded me yet for calling Whitey Bulger the coward that he is who hid under a rock in California away from the police. Oh, Whitey Bulger was if you ever seen the movie The Departed, uh Jack Nicholson based his character off Whitey Bulger, who was a oh, criminal wow. here in Boston. Johnny Depp, Black Mass, was the movie about Whitey Bulger. This just awful piece of garbage, human of a waste of a human garbage man, uh, murderer, killer, you know, gangster, mm-hmm. drug dealer, thief, all those things. Evaded police for decades, hid away in California for a while. And I just keep calling him. And every time I mention his name, I'm like, the coward. Whitey Bulger, which I know will get me assassinated in Boston. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll know the truth. Yeah, we'll know. Yeah. We'll know. But, like, I, I, mean, I, probably, I probably won't like, come forward because I don't want to get assassinated, but we'll, <laughs> but we'll still know. We'll know. <laughs> we'll know who yeah. did it. It was a listener of the hypothetical comedy podcast. Yes. <laughs> what do you say about Whitey? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's where I always lean towards is like being being provocative, being alternative, being, you know, a little aggressive. Like I, I took my lumps over the years. Like mm-hmm. I'm lucky. I had so many people who were willing to help me with comedy and explain to me the things that you intuitively don't know, you know, like one of the the bookers and promoters in Baltimore is no longer doing the business. Now, Dave Schofer, like this guy helped me out with so many things. Like in my growing years, like the first time I did his show and I bombed, you guys, look, dude, you took a bunch of years off of comedy. You know, you did open mics here and there. The fact that you bombed's a good sign because it showed that you didn't waste that time not being here. If you were super talented and you weren't doing comedy, that would have been a waste. But you're here, you're doing the work, you're putting the effort in. And the fact that you're starting at the bottom means that you're on the, on a path to something. You know? Like, talking to me about how, like, we in, instinctively as people judge people by looks even if we don't want to it's innate in us and the look that often gets judged by me is aggressiveness i'm very i'm i have you know i'm I'm not conventionally i am not a conventionally attractive person like i'm okay with that i understand that right i'm short but i'm stocky i take up space same right and if i don't approach people the right way i aggressively come off uh, I come off very aggressive, and that turns them off. Same thing with an audience. If I come out too strong on an audience, they're like, whoa. You know, it's the same thing when it comes to certain looks. That's why we all have that joke. Well, some people say I look like a mix between so-and-so and so-and-so. <laughs> Punchline. You know? I, audiences love I look like jokes. Yeah. Because it, conf- it, it does two things. It makes them know that you're self-aware and it makes it makes them easy. Also, sometimes they're softball jokes, so they can just laugh. You know, some audiences are mean and they want to laugh at mean things. So (laughs) it hits both audiences. It hits the sensitive people that want to connect with you. And it also makes the people that are like, I just want to hear insults. I just love Don Rickles. I want cheap, dumb insult jokes. Yeah, it or if like, this guy, you know, this guy walks out and you're like, man, this guy looks like a piece of shit. And then you're like, hey, I look like a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> we don't talk about this enough in comedy that like just confirming people's punchlines in their own heads 
will make them laugh. Like I do a, <clears throat> I do a, let me hold. I do a joke on my tour where you talk about part of Boston used to be water. We filled this water into land. Now on that land is the Boston Public Garden Lagoon. They filled this water in with land. And they look at the land and they said, do you know what this land needs? Water. And as I'm saying that joke, everybody on that tour bus is going, water. But when they hear me say water, they still laugh. They got there before I said the punchline. But when I said the punchline, all that did is confirm what they wanted to hear. So now they're laughing. Like, we don't talk about that enough in comedy. That's a weird phenomenon where we talk about we need to surprise people all the time with punchlines, right? Yeah. And that's very true. Laughter is a surprise reaction. But there's also a confirmation laughter. Now, I'm going to coin that term. I don't know if it's cool, if anyone wants to talk <laughs> about Where an audience is thinking of a thing, and if you say that thing they're thinking, they immediately go, oh, yay, happiness. Like, you hit that serotonin inside their own brain when they came to the same conclusion that you did. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. I like that. Sam does that with one of his jokes um, because he says he looks like something and immediately everybody jumps for the same answer. And it's like every show he does, the same answer. So, yeah, so I say that I look like the... My friend told me I look like the ugly guy on Pawn Stars. <laughs> and um, every time I say it, somebody in the audience always says Chum Lee. Like every yeah. time. Every time. time. You, I hear it from one direction or the other. Um, and then and then I pull the rug out and I say, oh, great. I look like the entire cast of Pawn Stars. <laughs> so he does it a twofer. And I you're love doing that, that twofer. You're, you're confirming yeah. their, their, their suspicions. And then you're also surprising them with the thing they didn't see. Right. Because yeah. then they go, I, oh, I he's right. They are all ugly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But you're also like you're hitting them with that that surprise that they yeah. that they weren't expecting, and that that second laugh is so much probably louder than that first one because they're yeah. like, yeah, ah. the first one's more like a murmur, kind of like, oh yeah, 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 totally, oh yeah, yeah, you know, and then I hit the punch, and then yeah, there's a big laugh. Yeah, because you set up an expectation, confirmed the expectation, and then betrayed it, which made them laugh ten times harder. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I mean. I could talk about jokes and theory and, and yeah. writing all the time. Like I, I, I love the the concept of just talking about the structure of jokes. I hate hearing people say, "Oh, joke! You can't manufacture a joke. Jokes don't have structure. Rules are meant to be broken in comedy." And it's like, nah, dude. It's the best ones who are doing comedy that are not showing you what their their structure is. Mm -hmm. You know, Christopher Titus. Everyone talks about. He's that one. You talk about people and like you listen to those jerk off white boys is like i'm not a comedian i'm more of a storyteller no you tell anecdotes that aren't funny is what you're doing dude right they want to believe that comedy is like set a punchline i'm not that kind of comedian i'm more like christopher titus look at titus's jokes look at his material story-based set up punchlines he's writing punchlines in a narrative fashion he even says it when he talks about his his method of writing he writes out the whole story and every sentence is a setup to a punchline. And if you oh, clock his jokes, incredible. if you clock his jokes, his laughs per minute are off the charts. And once you see his structure, you can't not see it anymore. And then you're like, you're listening to him stories, but then you can hear it. It's, here's the setup. Here's the punchline. Here's the setup. Here's the punchline. Here's the setup. And then there's the punchline. And it becomes 
I'm not going to say repetition because that's pejorative. I'm going to say that you can now see his structure, but he's such a master at his craft that he hid set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline in these long epic stories that he wow. tells. I got to check. I got to listen to him now and see if I can figure that out, listen to it and hear it. Yeah. And also Titus cannot be in the nicest, one of the nicest people I've ever met. I've been lucky enough to work with him when I've worked at clubs as sound guy and just sweetheart of a person. Only person when I worked at a club here in Boston doing sound, only comedian to ever come through that club in the years that I worked there that tipped everybody in the building. He literally, after his shows, he does, he does one nighters. He doesn't do weekends. He might do weekends, but everywhere I've worked with him, he does one nighters and stuff like that off nights and stuff. And the night uh, he did this, at the Baltimore Comedy Factory, and then he did that in Laugh Boston here in Boston when he came here. He walked up to the manager with a wad full of 20s in his hands. He goes, how many people are working here tonight? And they go, well, we had 14 servers, but your server was so He goes, no, no, no. How many people in the building? We had 14 servers, two bartenders. All right, cool. Well, we got the sound guy. How many guys you got working in the kitchen? And he just counts off, and he hands it. He doesn't go, here, give one to everybody. He walks up to everybody. And go, like he, At least he walked up to me. I don't know if he did it to anybody else, but I did sound for him. He walked up to me. Tip me out on sound, tip out every server, every bartender, every member of the kitchen. I'm pretty sure he said, here, give this, here's, you know, 20s for the guys in the kitchen. Give that to them. And he tipped everybody out. Sometimes I've been tipped by comedians as a sound guy. Most of the time, not, which is fine. I'm not expecting to get tips as a sound guy. But the fact that he just does that, you know, makes yeah. it. And he just, he talks to you. He just hangs out. He talks to you like a normal person. He doesn't hide in the green room and be rude. Like, he's just a cool dude. Chad Daniels is another cool guy where he'll just talk to you like a normal person. Chad will hang out afterwards, buy drinks for everybody, and, and chill and have fun. Like, there's comedians out there that know how to just be a nice person, you know? And some go above and beyond being a nice person. Oh, wow. And then some are absolute pieces of garbage. <laughs> yeah, no, I used to be security at a comedy yeah. club. And I've seen yeah, you good, know. Ones and, good ones and bad ones come through, absolutely. Uh, there's this one comic... Uh, she was having a like a birthday party for one of her for one of her team members. After the show was over, she was upstairs in the in the uh, upstairs area um, of the of the showroom, and she had the cake and champagne and everything. And they actually invited me and another security guard to come sit with them and to eat cake and drink champagne because we were like helping them out during the show and stuff. And so we're sitting there, and uh, she goes, "Okay, so which one of y'all are comedians?" And I was like, oh, me, you know, and then we started talking about comedy and stuff. And she was just telling us stories, different things. And it was really awesome. Yeah, that's that other thing is like the club that I worked with here in Boston, the management could not understand that the comedians would trust me more than them. They're like, they know if there's a problem, they can come to me. They should know better than that. I'm like, no, they come to me because, A, there's two reasons. One, I'm the sound guy. They already have a relationship with sound guys in general. Like, that's yeah. just kind of our business, right? naturally two if they don't know that i'm a comedian they quickly know they quickly figure out i'm a comedian you know especially I mean, when you're, it was you're one of the them locals. at that point yeah they know yeah i'm one of them like sam more sam morell i literally had to like sam morell came in there was an incident he was flipping his lid i just happened to be there at the moment and i had to talk him down get him to calm down i sent management he's like i don't want to talk to you get out of here and then just through the whole weekend, Sam just dealt with me when it when it came to stuff. He's like, "Yeah, you can tell management that." Yeah, like I was his go between for for things, and he was a you know he got just appropriately mad about a dumb contract writer thing. 
Mm-hmm. But I was like, look, dude, I don't, I don't see the writing. He's like, yeah, I know that. I know you don't, but this that. Can you go fix this? Like, he'd rather come to me because also, if he gets into a fight with management, like also in the brains, we know if you get in a fight with the management and the management then gets mad at you, then you don't get work again. If yeah, the sound guy gets pissed off at you and was like, fuck Sam Morrell, which not, lovely guy. But if I get mad having to deal with him, management's still going to book him. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Regardless of how you feel about him, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, short of sexual harassment, which also, in this business, Nunja still doesn't even care about that half the time. So, as long as the manager's like you, you're still fine. But if the rest of the staff, I mean, that's not also true because, like, the reason why Chad Daniels is nice to the whole staff is because he knows that the staff likes him. They're going to have him back. Yeah. 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 You know, and also that, that, that also creates morale, like business wise, that creates a good morale in your, in your environment. When everyone's having a good time, yes. it carries over. Like I was doing a, uh, uh, my last job before this tourism job, I was doing AV tech at a hotel and I had to keep telling management. Like we were having a problem with, we had a bunch of really qualified, amazingly talented AV experts at this hotel company. But we were getting stuck with doing setup and breakdown jobs of these corporate events. So I'm working at these companies and what they didn't understand, like they kept having us do setup and breakdown of these events, but not running the events. These are boring ass corporate events. Just guys coming on stage with a lavalier microphone. Go, All right. So our quarterly earnings last quarter were this much. And like, they're paying fa- tens of thousands of dollars for these events to show big, huge projection of spreadsheets and dumb bullshit. <laughs> but when I, they're hiring outside people to come in and run the events. And what I was telling, trying to convince them was like, you understand, we're working hard setting up and breaking down these events, but we're not getting any of the fun, finger quotes, fun of running the events. We're all people who ran events, you know? I came from live music. Another guy came from doing, you know, 32 channel live mix of, of concerts, you know, like, so, you know, we, we all come from different media backgrounds. I ran TV shows and studios and all kinds of stuff. I worked in radio all these years. We've just naturally done the events, but now we're just setting the equipment up, letting somebody else run it and break it down. That's a real hit to morale. Even if we're not, these corporate events are boring as fuck. It's more hard. It's more work trying to stay awake from falling asleep than it is actually doing the events. But those are the rewards for the setup and the breakdown. You know, we get to sit and chill and watch the thing. We can have our little jokes, our inside jokes. And if some of the events are cool, then we get to talk about that well. A great, great example is the comedy club I worked for was right across the street from this hotel. So they were doing a monthly comedy show at our hotel, at our pool deck. And the My first monthly. one they did, they got they had nicknames for each other. They all had a good laugh. Like, it was my friends who, who were on the show. Right? Like, I knew the comedians who were on the show. I'm like, you guys are going to love so-and-so. He's great. She's wonderful. You're going to love this. I'm talking all up. It happened the first week I worked at this hotel. Right? And they all had like, oh, this comedian was, Jay Whitaker was hilarious. He was so funny. He kept calling so-and-so, so-and-so. So now we call so-and-so that, you know. we. <laughs> <laughs> he called Rich Charlie. So now we all call Rich Charlie. It's like, hey, it's <laughs> DJ Tiger over there, you know, because we, like, so that's a morale thing that carried across us for weeks and weeks and kept people happy and engaged and made relationships between each and all of us, you know, and they don't get that. The corporate world. They're like, they're looking at dollars and cents and whatever mm-hmm. dumb bullshit, why they would let bring these outside people in, you know, like 
God, we we one of the corporate events, their their dinner event was Jim Gaffigan. Wow. Jim Gaffigan came to the hotel I worked at and did a forty five minute comedy show. You know? And we finally got to work that event. One guy had to sit up in in the balcony with a spotlight. And he was like, This is the worst job I've ever done. Running follow spotlight. I'm stuck here for forty five minutes. I can't get down. I can't move. All I have to do is follow him with this spotlight. Because if I make any movement, the spotlight jiggles. So I have to hold it this entire time. It was like, I was more sore doing that than anything else. But I got to see Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. You know, so he was happy. Like, that was the one that I talked to the guys afterwards. Like, oh, my God, I got to sneak in. I got to announce Jim Gaffigan from the God Mike, like this and that. And they were just happy. Because they got to do these things. And some places don't understand that morale thing. You're going to make your people happy by giving them these kind of bonding experiences. Don't take them to fucking improv classes. <laughs> <laughs> Let them go have fun. Don't take them to a murder mystery. Fucking let them do something that's fun. Not team building. Let them actually enjoy themselves. You know? Yeah, because team, the team building is more work. It's it's the atmosphere. And when the, the employees are happy, it filters onto the audience. So there it's like it makes the atmosphere ready to go for feeling good and laughing and appreciating where you are in the moment. And I think that, you know, it matters how you treat your staff and how you treat people around you. Especially in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, every across the board, but look, if you go into a comedy club and your waitress or your waiter, your server is a miserable prick. You're not going to be happy. And you're not going to be laughing at jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. if they love coming to work, if they're treated well by their employer, they're making good money. If the acts that come to the club are treating them well, yeah. and not treating yes. them like garbage. Like we have like the club I worked at, we had locals who were treating the staff like garbage. And I'm like, uh-huh. don't book those people again. I know. Who no, they are. Yeah. Ex- like, absolutely not. I don't care how much the audience loves them. Don't book them. If they're going to talk to the staff like that. Before I ever performed, the club I worked at, before I even ever performed there, before I worked there, before I ever performed there, I knew the name of of half the staff because I I would go there, I would see shows, I would talk to people. I knew their names. People who get headlining gigs at this club don't know the name of the staff. There was a guy headlining. I mentioned the manager's name. He went, who's that? And I'm like, the person who gave you your check last night. Oh, is that her name? Whoa. Wow. Like, it's one thing if you forget somebody's name, but if you're just flat out, oh, I don't know who that person even has a name. You're a dick. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely confirm that the the act that's there, the way they treat the staff definitely reflects on the staff. And then when people come back, the staff gets, gets excited. And then, you know, they want to help them. They want to be the green room server or whatever. Yeah, they um, want to so, work. They want to see their material again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, like, you know, Tommy Davidson, uh, whenever he comes to our club, and he probably does this for other clubs too, I don't know, he, during one of the other acts are on, he'll be baking chicken wings in the kitchen like he's, he has a special recipe. And so he <laughs> serves them to the entire staff. Yeah. And they're, oh, not that's the, awesome. they're not for the customers. They're for the staff. And so he'll make chicken wings and give them to the staff before he goes on stage. That's awesome. I love right? that he goes back there and does that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's awesome. So he's cool. he's such a cool dude. Uh, so many people have come through that are awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where you, where you live, you're close enough to to in proximity of L.A. where 
you know, big acts are going to come to the to the clubs where you where you're at because yeah, I mean, we're driving easy distance. travel. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Boston's a major city because people will come here, so it happens. But there's people who tour that don't come here because it is just too far because they don't have a following out out this far west, or mm-hmm. just because the bookers don't know them. Like Greg Barrett, one of my favorite comedians. I don't know if he's ever in his thirty year career. career you know, they're talking about like he's not a hugely well known name, but he's well known. He has a great following. Like to put him like on the on the like the level like he started with Janine Garofalo and they used to date when they were comedians together, like when they're open mic comedians, you know? Wow. Like, that's crazy. So that's like how long he's been in the game. I don't think he's ever played Boston. Ever Whoa. in his career. Wow. If he did, who knows when it was. But I would love for him to come out here. I love him. He's one of my favorite comedians. The only reason Bobcat Goldwith plays Boston is because he grew up here. But he doesn't do a theater. He doesn't do a club. He'll do a drop-in at, like, certain spots. Oh, wow. You know, he'll just, but he, I mean, he's barely doing stand-up anyway, but... Yeah. Uh, I mean, he did a whole tour with Dana Gould just recently, like, a couple years ago, so it's like he that's is doing comedy. That's like, like, uh, that's like a Robin Williams. Robin Williams, in the last few years of his life, you know, he came up in the San Francisco area, and he would just do drop-ins in San Francisco, random places. Yeah, and at improv uh, uh, shows, too, do yeah. just, you know, yes and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, so um, uh, I feel like uh, your comedy IQ is something I really, like, respect. When I first, oh. my initial, um, the first time I saw you on Displaced Comedians, you were arguing something. And I thought, <laughs> uh, I thought you were first a huge. First time I saw you, you were aggressive. <laughs> I thought, no, my first initial <laughs> response, right. to my, uh, impression to you was I thought you were a huge asshole. Right. Oh. And, and I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? And then I, I, I kept reading. I, I would read more into the argument. And the more I read into it, I'm like, oh, you know what? Actually, I kind of agree with what he's saying. You know, and and over the years, the pandemic years, when when things will go down in displaced comedians, I'm always like, well, let's see what Dennis says about this. You know? <laughs> and so yeah, I, just I say mean, that I really respect your uh, your comedy IQ. Thank you. I mean, it's years in the business and years in entertainment, and I've been surrounded by crazily, incredibly, amazingly smart and intelligent people that I've learned from them. I didn't formulate these opinions. I learned from other people around me. Like Boston is a like. This is a great city to develop in because it has a heritage. It has a tough scene. It's it, it doesn't pull any punches. You know, it's diverse, so you you're forced to to have like a different mindset about things out here in general. Either you you can't be regressive. If you're regressive, you're not going to go anywhere. Now, saying that there are tons of like backwoods fucking hit, old school like. I'm going to do Punjabi working at 7-Eleven accent kind of bullshit that still flies here in this town, but not in the major parts. Like, that's not where the, like, that's hidden back away in the, uh, like, the Knights of Columbus halls, (laughs) one-nighters territory. But, like, working in Boston proper and in the city of Cambridge, which is right on the other side of the river from Boston, like, you, it's a diverse scene. You have to, you you have to to be smart about it. Uh, And they a lot of my opinions formulated be, uh, because of here. Like I would not have been the comedian I am today if it wasn't for Boston. That bombing for ten months, moving here, trying to figure out who I am, what I was, and what I want to say, was so necessary. I grew leaps and bounds. Ba- and like I'm not saying that narcissistically. When I went back to Baltimore, my after my first year living here, the guys I started around comedy. You know, when I started around doing comedy, those guys that knew me when I started and left, they're like, dude. 
wow, you got better. And I was like, I needed to. I rise to the level around me, you know? Yeah. And so it comes to also in the, the opinion of the business as well. Uh, we don't hear adamantly still to this day. Boston does not have an open mic on Friday nights and Saturday nights. Okay. Every time somebody starts, tries to start an open mic on a Friday or a Saturday, they get, for ba- lack of a better term, pretty much bullied out of the idea. Because those oh are nights God. for showcases? Yeah. It's a night for showcases. It's the money night. Mm. You're devaluing comedy by making an open night on Fridays and Saturdays. Okay, okay. So and like okay. that's the consensus. Every time somebody tries to fight against that, it's a mob of people coming across them and stuff. And I mean, it's usually handled very tactfully. Sometimes it's not. Most of the time it is. It's tr- It's an educational moment. It's a learning moment, you know? And so... Like that, I I was one of those. It was like, hey, look, I know what I need to work. I want to do these things, and it's like, yeah, but you're devaluing it. And it's like, well, my value is lower because I'm learning, and I need that time to learn. And like, yeah, but that's not the place to learn. You need to learn here. It's like if I was trying to. Le- you're a wrestling fan, right? Yeah. It's like if I was trying to learn how to uh, do a suplex in the ring and not in the gym. Right. Yep. Right. Like I'm gonna hurt somebody trying to figure out how to do a snap suplex for the first time in the ring at WrestleMania. Yeah. That's now, a good you analogy. You gotta go practice that shit in the gym. I mean, mm-hmm. That's what open mics are for. You want to get better? Go practice yourself in the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, some people get that mindset of where it's like, you know, that, that the star, you know, and also I'm, I've been in entertainment my entire life. I've worked around some of the greatest entertainers of all time just because of the nature that I happen to business. That I ch- Like I've worked with the Beach Boys. Like I've, you recorded like big, huge country artists and, you know, Michelle Branch. I've worked with with her. I've done sound for amazing artists and, you know, I, I, and for my podcast, like my own podcast, I have big names I've interviewed. Why? Because I started interviewing people tw- 30 years ago when I was a kid and I worked my years up to, to being a good interviewer. And that's why Jessica Kirsten comes on my podcast. I love her. Says, oh, she was amazing. She could not have been wonderful. Literally gave me the compliment of going, you're a really good interviewer. And I was like, thank you. Like, of course, I played it down like, oh, you know, whatever. Or, <laughs> it sounded like Jessica Kirsten likes me. Yes. You know? Like there's there is public, uh, publicists that know that I do good interviews for a print thing. And I've been able to get them to do the print interview and let me release it as a podcast. I interviewed Dane Cook. They brought me Dane Cook. I didn't search out Dane Cook. They, his people came to me. It's like, hey, he's coming to Boston. You write for a paper. We hear good things about you as as an interviewer. Do you want to interview Dane Cook? We will make it happen. And I got to interview one of the biggest, Lewis Black. I mean, these are not brags. These are examples of what I'm, of you know. Entrusted with. Right. Yeah, of trustedness. And like. And also it goes to show that when you work with these people, I've been able to benefit and learn from them, but also I've had to learn to not be oh, so Lewis Black. You know, I don't have to do that. I don't, I don't want to be the Chris Farley for that SNL sketch with Paul McCartney or say, so, so Lewis Black, you know that time when you were in the movie uh, uh, Declassified? What was Or whatever was the name of that movie was with Justin Long? What was it like working with Justin Long? Uh, like, I got to be on point. Like, and also half the time, these people don't want to talk to me. Their management's <laughs> sending it to me. And, and you know, I got to, I've had to learn over the years, diffuse. I've, I can hear them in their voice where they're like starting off. Hey, what's up? All right, cool. What are we doing here? Okay, come on. Let's go. Where's your questions? And I just got to be like, Hey, you know what, dude? Like, 
I just want to let you know, I was a real big fan of this thing that you did when, you know, or, hey, you know what? I want to check, like, uh, Jim Jeffries. I disarmed Jim Jeffries by asking about how his family was doing. Like, we rescheduled our interview with Jim Jeffries because he was in the hospital. I opened up for something. By the way, Jim, how are you doing? I knew we were in the hospital the other day. And he goes, oh, no, it was nothing. I was just like, my whole family has COVID. Now I'm doing like a weird Irish accent for Jim Jeffries. <laughs> I'm not an impressionist, okay, guys? But like, oh, my whole family has. Man, I'm Jim Jeffries over here with me like your charms from Australia. But it's like, you know, my whole family has COVID. I'm literally covered in COVID puke from my baby right now. Oh, dang. You know, or like Joel Kim Booster. I asked him a question about working out and he was just like, oh, I've been waiting for years for someone to ask me about my workout routine. Here we go. Okay. And like <laughs> it endeared him. And that's just a trick of interviewing, uh, you know, that you learn as a skill. But what I'm saying is I've had the benefit of, of learning to keep my calm. And I don't have that starry, dreamy-eyed fantasy that that is comedy like oh somebody wants to work with me oh this might be my big break there are no big breaks it's all hard work mm -hmm. and and i want to look out for the other guys like the biggest arguments that came up in the displaced comedians and nico lukoff was on my podcast so what do you really do available ever a podcast or pod who runs the displaced comedians <laughs> him and i had it out as well where he's like dude you come off like a dick your points are good yeah. holy shit you're a dick and like, <laughs> we know you care but fuck you're a dick dude <laughs> and you're not wrong like i mean dana keel and, and i had to make up or like we are a pandemic friends who have met in real life and dana and i had to have that in her words come the jesus moment where she's like dude our first post in there you t attacked us for asking for people to give us money to donate to a thing for an open mic and i was like yep and i still stand by it dana you're great. You're talented and wonderful. I know you're out there doing good for people, but I think you did it the wrong way. And I was willing to tell you, you did it the wrong way. And she's like, yeah, you're right now. I see that, but you're also kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but since I've gotten to know you, you're not a dick. You're like, a, a, I mean, a, I've, we've always said this like throughout high school, like since high school to now, my friends of I always have called me the asshole with the heart of gold. Like I'm not going <laughs> to sugarcoat something, you know, and I'm, getting older and I want to be more palatable and I'm, I'm a lot less aggressive in things because the aggressive thing doesn't like, I'm just an aggressive person in general. Like uh, my, my bio says aggressively social. Like I'm a happy guy <laughs> around people. I'm like a, I'm like, I'm like a hyper little dog. I'm like, Hey, what's up everybody? You want to pet me? Can I lick you? Oh my God. Let's have fun. Everybody. You want to throw this ball? Can you throw this ball? I brought a ball. You want to see me chew on a toy? Like I'm that basically as a human, but also if it was a pit bull, <laughs> like, <laughs> but also if it just looked like a pit bull <laughs> with some like scars I, and like, <laughs> like I look like a ghetto pit bull dog that was in a dog fighting ring, but still smiles. <laughs> I look like I'm going to bite off your leg and arms, but also at the same time, I'm going to fetch your arms and bring them back to you. Like, <laughs> I agree to that. I feel like, um, you know, you might come off that way, but you are really, you know, a kind person. Yeah, I remember when absolutely. I was on a Zoom show one time and for some reason, the background of the Zoom show, like it oh, kept yeah. like going in and out and glitching or something. And the host of the show, I forgot who was like in charge of it, 
but they kept like singling me out and telling me your hair is wrong. There's something wrong with your hair. You're going to have to pull it back or something, or just turn off your camera altogether and just going over and over. And you messaged me after the whole thing. Cause I felt horrible about my hair. <laughs> and you're like, your hair is fine. Don't worry. About it. And I'm like, Thank you. Well, I mean, you trust, that is, thank you. Should you trust the opinion of hair with a guy who has no hair? So, to me, all hair is either wonderful and great, or I'm jealous and I hate your hair because you have it and I don't. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those arguments was people who were naive and my perception taking advantage of other comedians. And yeah, when right. you come in there and like when you come in there I'm like, hey, this person sucks and the people who are stuck like displaced comedians, there was a lot of just new faces in there. That was the majority of it because during the pandemic, the people that found displaced comedians were for the most part, a majority of them were people who didn't know what what to do in comedy. They were noobs, they weren't very experienced, and they stumbled across that looking for somewhere to go. Whereas people yeah. who had experience in comedy either did nothing during the pandemic or they went out and made the opportunities for themselves during the pandemic. Right. And they would yeah. occasionally come to displace to promote more uh, their, their, their things. So the people who are the inexperienced people and like, not to say you guys weren't, or I mean, Rachel was there and Rachel was not, a, you know, uh, uh, inexperienced person. We had a lot of experienced people there too, but a vast majority were people. Well, we had like a core community. For the most yeah. part, yeah. Yeah, there was a core community of experience of people, but there was also a mass community of, of, of people who were find, trying to find a place. And that place happened right. to be, uh, brought them into a naive place of the things. And I don't want people to be taken advantage of. You know, I say that here when I see shows here in the Boston area or in other communities, my friends are getting the, something that's exploitative looking. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll be the first to throw up warning flags and say, ah, maybe this is not my idea, but the thing that, you know, I don't. I don't have that that starry eyed dream. Like this is gonna be like, this is gonna be the show that makes my career. No, it's a lose. I don't want to go into losing battles anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like the people who talk about, oh, you got to go in this open mic where nobody listens and it's a fight and the crowd hates you and this and that. I'm like, or you know, you could just like write jokes in a supportive place and learn to get better. Like yeah. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to leave an open mic feeling like you want to go home and find out what the weight limit of your favorite belt is. You know, oh like <laughs> you shouldn't have to go into those battles like where it's a lose lose situation anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to do it. Nobody should do it. You're not really learning from those things. Like I, I, I like the reason I talk about jokes, like I for the longest time I was friends, uh, me and my friends were running a workshop. You know, we continued through the pandemic on Zoom. Every Saturday at noon, we got together and we worked out jokes and we talked so much about structure. Cause if you go in a lot of these like feedback mics, ugh, feedback mics are just abysmal unless there's somebody actually of quality in the group. If, but if it's just a bunch of the other open micers, all you're getting is, so this is how I would write that dick joke. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or either I like it or I don't like it. And that's the yeah. end. Of it. And yeah. And then that doesn't help you. No. Like, you know? So like we would, you know, and I was kind of the catalyst for this in the group was talking about here is the intent of the joke. Let's talk about structure. Here is your setup. Where is your punchline? All right, here's something funny, but where is the thing that sets it up? Let's economy, you know, break down economy words. Let's talk about rules of three. We talked every week. We talked about the rules of three every fucking workshop because it comes up all the time. What are those rules of three? Well, you got to have a normal thing, then a slightly uh, less normal thing, and then your punchline. You know, 
And of course, everyone can go, rules are meant to be broken, but you have to know the rule before you can break it. Yeah. Right? Yes. You know, Very I do that funny. in my, again, when it comes to like the, the tour guide stuff, I have joked, like my 80 minutes of tours, full, probably 65, 70 minutes, easily of jokes and punchlines. Like that, like out of that 80 minutes, everything I said the other day, maybe four attractions throughout this entire 80 minute tour does not have a punchline somewhere. There's four things I talk about that have absolutely no jokes in them whatsoever. Oh, wow. For 80 minutes. You know how many things, how many things I point at and go, here's this thing, here's that thing. Here's this significantly historic thing. Here's the, how this history of this thing, you know, and they all are packed jam-packed with jokes are they gross jokes no 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 they're not not at all great not not all are gold standard i'm willing to admit that i lean hard into puns and you've you've seen my comedy you know there's no puns in my comedy but this character i'm playing of a tour guide i'm just beating you in the face with puns <laughs> i literally i i open my 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 tour with the company is called Boston Duck Tours. They're called duck boats. They're trucks that drive through the ground, go in the water, oh, they turn into wow. a boat, and they go back on land. So they're called duck Dang, boats. That's crazy. So I open so my cool. AR and I open every tour with I'm going to be your con duck tour. Ah, you guys get it. Duck, <laughs> duck, 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 duck. <laughs> nice. If you like that joke, you'll love this tour. If you didn't like that pun, 80 minutes of pun, get on board. Like, that's how I start. <laughs> I'm challenging you to have fun. That goes back to that aggressive dentist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm literally forcing you, like, you will have fun or you will regret paying $53 for this. Like, that's how <laughs> essentially what I'm saying. Cause, you know, but we, we, again, that's what I, I'm going back to is talking about, like, that is, I, love talking about how to build things and i don't want to see people get taken advantage you know and i don't want to have to be mean in it with people but sometimes you have to be and and you know especially when it comes to like when you're when somebody's coming out it's like hey everybody i have the dream opportunity of the world and i'm like hey everybody he's taking advantage of you and you deserve to get paid and then when they reply back no we don't deserve to be paid i, I don't know, know what that blows my mind oh my god <laughs> there was three incidents where somebody's like hey everybody yeah. We have money for this thing, but we're not going to pay any. It was like, hey, you should pay comedians. You guys all deserve it. And they were literally like, why are you ruining this for us, Dennis? I'm like, I don't, Oops, I don't know. Do. <laughs> <laughs> you guys all deserve to be paid. You're talented. No, we are not. No, we are not. But I think that's like one of the coolest things about you is that, and I, I'm going to circle back just like briefly to it, is uh, when you were, I guess, let go from the the morning radio show thing uh i think the way the reason why it impacted you so much is you strive to use your voice so intensely and it was almost like they were taking away your voice no no you you hit that nail on that head like mm -hmm. we we as comedians look if you play a song and nobody claps it's because they didn't like the song it's not because they didn't like you as a musician yeah if somebody doesn't like your play it's not because they didn't like your performance. They just didn't like that play or that movie that you directed. If somebody la doesn't laugh at that joke, it's because they didn't laugh at you. 
And yeah. that's the thing about comedy, man. Like nobody will ever say, with exception of other comedians, I have to put that asterisk in there. <laughs> nobody has ever said, oh my God, that guy's an asshole. I hate him. I can't stand him. But God damn, is he funny? Like that has <laughs> <laughs> never been said. We like we do it all the time where we see somebody, somebody's laughing at them and you're just looking like, why do they think that's funny? I don't, because they like them. There's people who are naturally likable and charming and we just gravitate to them. Not even when it comes to like, uh, the um, conventional attractiveness. There's just people who are naturally likable. I got a guy who uh, started the Duck Tours in the same year. It, I, it, uh, let's see, I started March 15th in training. I graduated from training March 17th, uh, May 17th. So it took me two months to train to be acceptable as a, as a tour guide. And this guy, it was almost the end of June. And it's still kind of sketchy, like when it comes to like his ability at being able to tell the stories and the histories and being able to point to things and do it in front of 35 people at a time while driving 25 miles an hour through the city. But no one gets mad when his tour is fucked up because he's just naturally likable. Wow. Like he just has a natural wow. likability. Even I hate him, but I still find myself like, all right, Lewis, I just. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, Lewis? You're not such a bad guy. But then he says something stupid. I'm like, I want to fucking strangle you. <laughs> but you're just... Do it again. I want to strangle you, but then also hug you. Why do you give me these conflicting feelings, Lewis? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, some people are just naturally charismatic, right? I'm not naturally charismatic. I can be likable. I can be powerful. I can charm the pants off motherfuckers. But I'm only powerful for like seven minutes when I'm doing that. Like I can fake being likable for seven minutes. Anything over seven minutes, you got to get on board with what this is, or you're not gonna be happy. <laughs> yeah, it's like right when 80. I waited tables, I'm so good at waiting tables and bartending because it's all forty-five second interactions throughout the night. And you're like, oh my god, he's so nice and wonderful, isn't he great? Oh, I love him. I can sell you a head-on fish cooked whole. I'm that good at painting a picture and being likable and telling you that you're gonna enjoy. This bronzini that was cooked in an oven at 325 degrees for 20 minutes inside a beautiful bur blanc. That is definitely not what it was cooked in. Not a bur blanc. It was cooked in a red wine reduction with vegetables and stuff. And yes, it's going to come head on. But don't worry. We're going to get that because that's where the flavor and the juices are. It all mixes in together. We're going to bring it in. And I'm going to take care of that fish for you. I'm going to clean it. It's going to be the most juiciest, moistest fish you're ever going to have. You're like, oh, oh yeah, give me that bronzini. <laughs> and then I bring a fish and it just stares at you back at your face. And you're like, what decision did I make? What did he talk me into? <laughs> I can do that. But if you want me to sit down after that seven minutes, <laughs> it's a gamble whether you're going to like me after that seven minutes. <laughs> but I think I think you're like very uh, important to the the ecosystem of people because, um, yeah, you might come off as very aggressive and uh, but you're all you also come off as like you kind of kick the bullshit. So people know that they could get a straight answer from you. You know, they trust your your um intellect on things they trust your advice on things and they'll they'll know that you're not just 
blowing smoke up their ass to make them feel good. They they'll know that they can get the truth from you. And that's why it's so important to have people like you um, around other people that are just kind of like living in a fantasy world and are around. Yes. People all the time and people that just kind of uh, bypass what things you need to work on just to be your friend, just to be likable with you, you know? No, I thank you. Like it's, I want to be honest and, but you know, and some people, like I had a roommate who was also a comedian here in Boston. And the first time he performed at one of the clubs here, he was like, this is a big deal. I grew up loving this club and I've always wanted to play there. And I was like, bro, you're a comedian. You should, you should just know that you're going to play at that club. You should go. Yes, I am being booked at that club because I am deserving of it. And I wish I sometimes had that starry eyed fantasy like he does. Like, you know, that, that wonderlust, that like excitement of those things. Cause sometimes I miss out on that, you know, you know, like, yeah, I'm working. If I'm working at a club, I believe that I should be there because I've done all the things to get me there, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not, um, it's not this exciting moment that I'm going to be nervous for it. See, yeah, no, I'm supposed to be here. Like, it's this is my job. Confident. This is what I'm doing. But I wish I had that joy that other people have. Like when I was doing training for this duck tour job, everybody loved like they they did great jobs taking us to like special intimate tours of like certain places so we could talk about them more. We got great access that nobody else got would normally get on some of these things, and they're all like, "Oh wow, snap, snap! Here, let's take selfies. Let's do this." And they're all posting on social media, and I'm like. I mean, it's just a church, guys. Like, <laughs> sometimes I don't have that wanderlust that other people have, and I long for it. Like the only time it's weird that we brought this up today. Maybe it's just on my mind, and I'm forcing the conversation. But I was thinking about that today. The only thing that I ever, when I moved to Boston here ten years ago, in the ten years I've been here, up until working for the Duck Tours, I did no tours, no tourist stuff. Didn't go see anything. Didn't care. Now, when I have this job, I look out in the skyline and I notice the big buildings that we talk about every day. Like, I look at them. I've seen them a thousand times. I know what the Prudential Center is. I can spot it in the skyline. I never cared that it was there. The other day I was on a bus and I looked over and went, huh, Prudential Center, cool. You know, but the only tour I did was of the Lampoon, the Harvard Lampoon, which is like a legendary uh, r- comedy writing guild at Harvard University. The people that went on there went on to be like the National Lampoon and some of the biggest minds of comedy, Conan O'Brien, B.J. Novak, Harold Ramis. Like, the alumni of the Harvard Lampoon are massive when it comes to the world of writing and comedy. And I got to tour their fraternity house. I was invited. It's an invite only. It's not a thing you can just go up, hey, $20 for a tour, please. No. The members of that fraternity have to come up to you and go, would you like a tour? And I was fortunate enough to be on a comedy show right down the street from them. They, ca- the, the people at the Lampoon came to it, had a great time. They came up to me and like, hey, would you and the rest of the comedians of the show like to tour the Lampoon? I was like, yes. And I went and visited it today, just the outside of it. And I was just thinking about that. I was like, that is the only thing that I have ever cared about in Boston since I moved here until I took this job doing uh, tours and stuff. And even then, I'm still like, man, don't care much about history. But... You know, I, I learned enough of the history to be able to do my tours and write my jokes and make people have a good time. I will force you to have a good time on this. <laughs> <tour>. <laughs> 
Some people pay $53 to spend 90 minutes of their lives trapped in a vehicle and refuse to have a good time. I'm like, why did you do this to yourself? You (laughs) are causing your own pain right now, not me. But uh, and and that's one of the few times that I've ever felt that kind of wonderlust and joy was when I was getting toured around this secret special tour of the Harvard Lampoon. And I was like, I wish I had that that feeling in my life more like you, you know, you guys are both positively optimistic people. I, you know, you're optimists. Your glasses are half full of you too. That's what's wonderful about the two of you is like, no matter what you guys are like, yeah, thumbs up. Awesome. You know, and and in different ways, you know, Sam is just always just like, yeah, dude, you know, and you're just like, (laughs) like, you're like Athena, you're like a a coddling supportive mother. We're just like, Oh, this is great. Everybody. Like, your positivity, positivity yeah. compliment each other in such beautiful ways. Whereas my, you know, your your glass is half empty. Some people are half full, or you guys are half full. Some people are half empty. My glass is broken and spilled out over the place. That's how I look at every day sometimes, and that's part of that mental illness that I live with every day, and having to try to like find the joy and find the positivity. You know, I could. You know, I'm I'm getting better at it, trying to like I'm finally at a job where I'm happy. I come to work and try to be positive and happy and not being upset about stuff. You know, like I've had jobs that I've loved more than this job, but they came with stress. Yeah. There's so much little stress here. Yeah, I'm making good money. I'm doing tips. I'm making people laugh. Okay. Right, and you're right. You're you're in a job where not only can you be funny, but you're also able to write your own jokes. Uh, I wish that was true, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you, I mean, you I write didn't them. Know, I, Based on the tour. Yeah, I've written my own jokes, but there's jokes that I wish I would tell. That (laughs) (laughs) And that was the stuff. I mean, and that was why it took me two months and not six weeks like the other guys is because I needed to find my line with the company. Mm -hmm. My two trainer guys said it flat out. They're like, Dennis, we can't trust that you're not going to go out there and say that Mark Wahlberg is a racist. (laughs) Like, we don't trust that you're going to go out there and say something offensive and turn audiences off. I was like, well, no, dude, I do clean comedy. I can do clean comedy. But I need to find out what you're going to let me do and what I, what I can and cannot get away with. Like, once you tell me where that line is, I'll stay on this side of the line. But I have to test it and find out where that line is. Mm-hmm. Like, there was one of the jokes I told on the thing, which was just for the instructors, where it was, uh, I messed up uh, talking about, uh, let's just say it was Mary Dyer. Mary Dyer was hung by the Puritans. Oh, no, wait, sorry. Mary Dyer was hanged. Horses are hung. Anyway, you know, like, <laughs> I talk about, uh, there. There's on our tour, we talk about what a pictogram. Pictogram is a physical item or an image that hangs above a shop to let people who do not speak English or read or write know what they sell in there. If you saw a tea kettle above a place, you know you can get tea there. You see a hammer, hardware store. If you see... Oh, wow. Two D's hanging above a, a building. What do they sell there? Dunkin' Donuts? No, Russ Meyer films. Like, ru- that is a joke I also have to explain. <laughs> Russ Meyer is famous for making low budget movies of women that are very well endowed. Uh. I mean, I could also say, hey, if you see a pair of D's hanging above a shop, what do they sell there? <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts? No, breast implants. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, by the way, that's the difference between me telling a joke that's funny for me and me telling a joke that's going to be funny to everyone else. That's, yeah. <laughs> but I want to tell that joke on my tours, but I cannot tell that joke to a class of eight-year-olds. 
Oh yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> you know what would be interesting is if you like yourself, just like your proprietary thing, like did um like a tour, your own tour, and you upload it like a podcast episode, and people can listen to it and walk around and hear what you're saying about the tour as they're walking around. They That'd have those rad. podcasts. Actually, I listened to one about one of the neighborhoods here in Boston during my training. And I, I pulled a couple of facts that we weren't talking about in classes and a good story uh, about the Back Bay neighborhood from one of those things. There are walking podcast tours and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Oh. I've never heard of that. Throughout training. Oh, yeah. If you're ever in a, a different city, just Google that. Just go to podcast and put in the name of that city. There's podcasts of tours of cities that you can just oh, pop wow. out and do. So it's already thick. So you came up with an idea that's already okay. there. So it means you have good intentions and good instincts, Athena. <laughs> uh, but I have been I have been saying I do want to create a, the roast of Boston uh yeah. tour. I just drive around Boston and just insult, insult. Yes, oh, that's what I'm insult. saying. Like that would something be incredible. that's like, like really unique to you. That would be incredible. That would be fun. Uh, you know, roast as an audio producer, great. maybe that's what I'll do in my off season is uh start writing the Boston Roast Tour podcast. Yes. <laughs> or just take your own tours too. Just take the people around. Yeah. <laughs> like, you see that guy? That guy's an asshole. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hey, so uh, in closing, you want to talk about your podcast? So yes, my podcast is called So What Do You Really Do? Where I interview artists and entertainers about their day jobs. Talking about the stuff we have to do during the day to support what we want to do at night. Goes back to what I've been talking about this entire time. Uh, you know, We need support to do the things that we want to do. Like I want to talk to artists, painters, sculptors, musicians, talk about the stuff that we do. Like some of the people, and I don't want to talk to like baristas, like or people who wait tables. I have friends who are talented and have amazing day jobs. Uh, you know, I know a stand up comedian friend who was a video game designer. I've known a couple of them actually now, but like, you know, my, one of the bands I interviewed was a local Boston band where four out of the six of them, were music teachers and they all taught in different music places. One was a private music teacher that started teaching music when she was 16 years old out of her house. Another guy teaches at a conservatory. Other person teaches at a public school. Other guy teaches music theory, which is different than teaching people how to play the instruments, you know? And then I talked to um, one of the people in the band was also a goddamn white coat lab t white coat lab scientist like real mad scientist got to get chemicals and things and stuff like that you know and he played trombone in this band and then the dirty dotties had this one member in the band uh christina who is a musical therapist and i'm like what is a musical therapist well she goes you know i heal people through music i'm like okay yeah i did the same thing in D, &D when i would play a bard what the fuck are you talking about she was like well here's a good example if a kid's really scared of surgery, we go into surgery and instead of hooking them up to, to meters and machines and giving them drugs to calm their, their heart rate down, I play a certain song. And I, I know how to play a song in a way that'll make their heartbeat match the beats per minute of my song. And I'm like, that's fucking voodoo. What are you doing? You <laughs> so went to college cool. for that? Wow. Right? It's so cool. Wow. I'm like, and she just plays in a band. You don't know how her cool her day job is because she plays xylophone in a band or you know, <laughs> she's the backup singer of a band or whatever it was that she did. You know, like, you know, and they, so those are the people I talk like uh, my friends from War on Women. One of them is a data scientist that works for astrophysicists and trying to figure out how to comp compress all their data information about the goddamn universe into a hard drive. 
You know, and that's what she does. Like, these people have amazing jobs, and we don't know that. Either we have people who we work alongside, and we don't know what their talent is, or we see talented people, and we don't know what they do during the day. That's amazing. And that's what the podcast mostly highlights is people of them. Uh, so you can check it out. It's called, So What Do You Really Do? As in the phrase, like, oh, you're an actor? So what do you really do, though? Wait tables? Oh, like, that's where the name comes from. <laughs> that is it's awesome. a very confusing name until you actually <laughs> figure out where it comes from. There's like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but you can find it available on the big comedy network now. That uh, is a brand new comedy network that was made from the pandemic. My pandemic friends started a network, brought my podcast onto them. Um, yeah. And it's been great and wonderful working with them, trying to, like, they're helping me try to get my podcast out there. Um, to get more and more ears listening on it, and they've been wonderful working with me. But it's also available on the Big Comedy Network and everywhere podcasts are potted. Favorite podcast app has got it. So what do you really do? Nice. Mm. Nice. Awesome. And you want to uh, plug your social media? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's at Dead or Dennis on the, on the all the things. Twitter. It's still there. Uh, threads. <laughs> it's Instagram. called X now, actually. <laughs> yeah, X. Uh, X going to give it to you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, and uh, of course, on the TikTok at Dead Air Dennis, D-E-A-D-A-I-R-D-E-N-N-I-S. I've also never said D-E-N-N-I-S. And now I feel kind of weird and awkward. I feel like I was trying to be too cool. <laughs> like I forced that. Like, oh, guys, it's D-E-N-N-I-S. Wait, wait, how do you spell double? D-O-U. <laughs> <laughs> it is D-E-D-O-U-B-L-E-N-N-I-S. <laughs> you can find me uh, across the board at Funky Sam Medina. And I'm at She Shines for You, all spelled out, no numbers. And everything else is at Hypothetical Comedy. Hey, thank you so much, Dennis. Oh, my pleasure, guys. It was great catching up and talking with you guys. And we, we should do some Zoom uh, uh, Jackbox games in the future. We should. Oh, yeah. <laughs>